When it comes to tackling climate change, is there a plan B? I'm Richard Hollingham, and in this special edition of the Planet Earth podcast, I'll be examining plans to engineer the climate to combat global warming. From a UK project investigating reducing the amount of sunlight that hits the Earth... What we're really testing are the principles, and one of the key things we're interested in is the effect of wind on the balloon and on the pipe or on the tether. To methods of increasing the amount of carbon dioxide absorbed by the oceans. The way it might work is that you might spread large quantities of iron into the ocean in a bioavailable form. Schemes like this are known as geoengineering and there are many more ideas out there including giant mirrors in space and systems that remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. And I'm with Matt Watson from the University of Bristol, who's project leader for SPICE, Stratospheric Particle Injection from Climate Engineering. Now, Matt, your your project's designed to test the feasibility of injecting sulphur particles into the stratosphere to reflect sunlight. Is that that right? Uh, Yes, that's exactly correct. So what we're interested in is looking at whether or not we can emulate natural systems to see whether or not we can reduce the amount of sunlight hitting the Earth's surface and therefore cooling uh, the planet. And when you say the stratosphere, what, how far up is that? We want to try and do this. The models suggest that the, the most efficient place to do it is about 20 kilometres. Now, you're not actually going to do it. You're looking at the feasibility of it. But what's the, the theory? What's it, what's it based on? Okay, well, what we have from uh, Mount Pinatubo in the Philippines was an eruption in 1991 that injected around about 20 million tonnes of sulphur dioxide into the atmosphere. That converted over time to about 30 million tonnes of sulphate aerosol, very small, very reflective particles. And what that does is bounce the sun's rays back out into space, reducing the amount of energy reaching the Earth's surface. So how does this compare with other geoengineering ideas out there? Yes, so so geoengineering is a catch-all term for a suite of possible technological solutions to climate change. And they basically fall into two schools, the first of which is this thing called carbon dioxide removal, where you actually physically suck carbon dioxide, which uh, scientists know is the mechanism by which the planet is heating up. And there there are actually even different ways of doing that. You have these things called artificial trees, which uh, capture... Uh, carbon dioxide. There's also a mechanism uh, called biochar, where you eff- effectively bury carbon in the ground. Through to the second scheme, which is called solar radiation management. And what you're doing here is trying to manage the Earth's radiation budget, so control the amount of light either coming in or reflecting off either the stratospheric aerosols at 20 kilometres or tropospheric clouds at maybe two, three kilometres, or the Earth's surface. So there's even a discussion about painting roofs white. That actually increases what's known as the planetary albedo. So it still bounces uh, radiation back out into space. Well, to find out more about what SPICE involves, I visited Hugh Hunt in the engineering department at the University of Cambridge, who's developing the technology. The SPICE project overall is divided up into three bits. The first bit is about trying to establish what particles we might put up into the stratosphere to cool the planet in some way, were we to want to do that. The second part of the project is to figure out how to get those particles up into the stratosphere safely and uh, economically. And the third part of the project is to look at what the effect will be on the climate. The part of the project I'm involved in is the second part, which is how to get particles up 20 kilometres 
into the stratosphere. And the initial project is just to look at the feasibility of this. This is one kilometre pipe. And this is the kit we've got around us. So w- what is okay. here? If we were to think about putting 20, 30 kilograms per second up 20 kilometres into the stratosphere, well, we wouldn't do that in one go because the design issues are rather difficult. No one's been able to do that up until now. So we're starting with something much uh, more manageable, which is to put a, a balloon, a normal sort of blimp-sized balloon, at one kilometre and take pretty much an ordinary garden hose-sized pipe and to use an ordinary garden pressure washer to pump water up to that one kilometre. Which is what we've got here. We've got a, an ordinary... Yeah, so this is... Um, pressure this washer. This here is a pressure washer. It's um, rated at um, 150 bar. So this is the sort of thing people clean patios or, or driveways yeah, with. You can is. just buy this in any uh, yeah. DIY shop. You do. It's got enough pressure to get the water up to a kilometre. And we've got some pretty ordinary hose here. This hose is, like your ordinary garden hose, is, is fibre-reinforced, and that means it can withstand high pressure and also to withstand tension. So you're just pulling on it there, and you can't, you can't stretch, stretch yeah, that. We've got to be sure that the materials we use are going to be safe. So you have the, the pressure washer at the bottom, one kilometre pipe, and it's being held aloft by a balloon... Yeah, and we have a large I've got a bal- party balloon I've here. got a balloon. It's just a party balloon. But it means what it means is I can sort of hold up a picture of what the thing might look like. So um, you've got the pressure washer on the ground here, the hose connected to the pressure washer, and that piece of hose, which you can't really stretch, going up to the <laughs> balloon above your head. And we will put pictures of this on the yeah. uh, Planet Earth online Facebook page. If that works, what's the next stage? So the idea is to spray water at a kilometre, really because uh, it's not objectionable. The quantities of water we're talking about is of the order of maybe a litre per minute, which is one-tenth of what a, a good shower would be. What we're really testing are the principles, and one of the key things we're interested in is the effect of wind on the balloon and on the pipe or on the tether. The idea being that um, if in heavy winds the whole thing falls over, then we have to think about how we might design it so that it doesn't fall over. I think it's just going to look rather dull. It's going to look like a balloon on the end of a string. And you might, if you get your binoculars out, see the the stream of water coming out. One of the things we're trying to get across is that that is probably what it would look like were we to put something at 20 kilometres with a bigger pipe and a bigger balloon. Well, scaled up, it'll probably look exactly the same. And uh, were we to think about putting something up at 20 kilometres, we'd only need maybe 10 or 20 of these around the planet to effect the kind of global cooling that we might uh, be looking for. And with the 20-kilometre project, the water isn't the thing you're ultimately going to, to use or might use when you're talking about geoengineering. You prefer the phrase uh, climate engineering. Yes, I do prefer the phrase climate engineering because, in a way, it doesn't uh, matter whether the climate changes because of man-made interference or, or otherwise. If we find that the climate is getting warmer, then we might like to in some way modify the climate. Climate engineering sounds like we understand what we mean. I also think it's important to distinguish between carbon sequestration at source, which is taking carbon out of the chimney stacks of power stations, and then putting it straight into the ground. That really is dealing with a man-made source of carbon dioxide. 
The nice thing about the term climate engineering is that it's clear that we are dealing with the climate as it is or as it may be and trying to change it in some way. Hugh Hunt in his Cambridge laboratory. And as I mentioned, you can see some pictures of Hugh with his balloon and pressure washer, as well as a short video on our Facebook page. To find it, search for Planet Earth Online. Now, Matt, this all sounds relatively straightforward. Are there any dangers with the the SPICE experiment itself? Let's talk first of all about this one kilometre pipe. Okay. well, the SPICE project itself, as you've correctly highlighted, is a feasibility study. 90% of it is going to be conducted either on a computer or in the lab. So, for example, we're going to try and characterise the optical properties of different particles, their chemical uh, impacts on the stratosphere, again, in the lab. And we're also going to do a lot of modelling. Um, the, th- the thing that m- seems to have caught most people's imagination is the fact that we're actually going to get out and try this uh, delivery system, a one-kilometre pipe and balloon that Hugh's been talking about. Um, there are risks associated with that. For example, we have to close airspace above it, and we have to make sure that we have strategies in place to make sure that, for example, if the pipe snapped, we, ha- we can retrieve the balloon carefully, we can bring it dra- down in the controlled manner, etc. As for the environmental impact, we're only pumping water, and we've actually gone to great lengths to make sure even that doesn't have an Im- environmental signature. We're very mindful of the fact that there are arguments against geoengineering per se, but actually this particular experiment, I think, is exceptionally safe. What about if it was then developed, not necessarily by you, but to 20 kilometres and first to put water through, then start putting sulphur particles through? What are the dangers of that? Well, okay, so with an increase in scale comes an increase in complexity. The engineering challenges to put a balloon and pipe to 20 kilometres are actually much more significant than one kilometre. You have to pass through very, very turbulent parts of the atmosphere that are moving at great speed, possibly in different directions for not much change in height. Actually, I don't think water is particularly benign in the stratosphere because there's not much water up there. So I'm not sure you'd want to pump water in the stratosphere. We'd have to actually think about what one might pump up there. If you then got to something that was climatologically active, there are a huge range of possible side effects, all of which need affecting how do the particles impact ozone, how do they uh, change rainfall patterns, what do they do to the, the radiation budget. And all of these things are things that SPICE is going to begin to approach. Why do something so complicated? Why invest the money in this? Why not plant more trees or, or do the, you know, paint the roofs of houses white? I mean, they're an awful lot simpler and we know they'll, they'll work. Uh, well, I, I guess I'll have to uh, call you on that last one. I'm not convinced they will work. Um, the critical thing about geoengineering technologies is that, is that none of them should get a free ride. Uh, there's been a lot of stuff written in the press recently about how some stuff is safe and some stuff isn't. I'm afraid that's utterly preemptive. We know we have no idea what stuff is safe and what stuff isn't. White roofs, for example, looks pretty safe, but it's not clear that it would have the desired effect. Planting trees, actually, there are huge environmental issues with planting trees. What do you do about biodiversity? What do you do about changing the Earth's reflectivity? And, and the same goes for cloud whitening and also for stratospheric uh, aerosols. All of this stuff needs to be thought of exceptionally carefully before we do anything. Well, one of the most controversial ideas for engineering our climate is to increase the amount of carbon dioxide absorbed by the seas. Various ocean fertilisation schemes have been studied by scientists at the National Oceanography Centre in Southampton, where, with the wind howling outside, I spoke to Richard Sanders and Richard Lampett. Well, ocean fertilisation, in its simplest sense, is just the deliberate 
uh, introduction of nutrients of various sorts into the ocean in order to make them produce more. These nutrients are either what we call macronutrients, uh, which are sort of nitrate, phosphate and silicate, or they may be micronutrients needed in very small quantities, such as iron. So Richard Sanders, is this a, a natural process that goes on anyway? There are some places uh, in the world's oceans where we see that these macronutrients that Richard Lampitz just described are present in vast excess. And uh, in those environments, we, we feel that, that that occurs because these micronutrients aren't, aren't there in sufficient quantities for growth to occur. And in those regions, principally the Southern Ocean but other places, there are some small oases of life associated with uh, sub-Antarctic islands, polar islands, where natural processes are eroding uh, volcanic rocks and bringing to the sea surface these micronutrients, iron in particular, and stimulating productivity. So yes, this iron fertilisation is a natural phenomenon that occurs in many places in the oceans. And the oceans have a, a major role anyway, don't they, in storing carbon? That's right. Um, the totality of the processes that occur in the upper ocean biologically that sequester carbon, we refer to that as the biological carbon pump. And that's a hugely important process going on in the background, uh, performing a really valuable service for humanity and for all other uh, animals and plants on the planet. It's storing massive quantities of carbon dioxide biologically in the ocean's interior. And if it didn't exist or if it changed, really our, our world would be a rather different place to the one we see today. So Richard Lampert, how would this work? So the way it might work is that you might spread large quantities of iron in the, into the ocean in a bioavailable form. So that is, you've got a lot of research to do this, to make sure that the iron is available for the microscopic plants, the phytoplankton, for them to take it up. When you say a large amount of iron, how much? Well... There is a, actually quite a lot of disagreement about how much iron is required. But one does need to bear in mind that the volcanoes and rivers and, as Richard Sanders was saying, the islands themselves produced absolutely vast quantities. So there is an enormous natural cycle of iron in the globe. And we're talking about much, much smaller quantities than are produced by volcanic activity, for instance. So what are the side effects of doing this if, if it was done on a large scale? One of the key issues in the, any of the research that we're wanting to, to carry out is the first thing is, will it work? Will it actually remove the carbon dioxide from the atmosphere? And the second is, what are the potential side effects and how likely is it that they are going to take place? And some of these are quite significant and serious and they may actually make the whole uh, process not work. For instance, one could release some gases at the same time, such as nitrous oxide, which have a very high greenhouse warming potential. So you fertilize an area of ocean, uh, you reduce some carbon dioxide, remove carbon dioxide, but actually what you do is release the, the nitrous oxide. So those sort of side effects are ones which are an absolutely central part to any research that we carry out. There are a variety of others and one of the key issues is to establish what are these side effects and how likely is it that they will occur if this was carried out on a large scale. 
So, so one of the most important side effects perhaps might be uh, alterations to the marine ecosystem. By its very nature, you add iron to the surface ocean and stimulate plankton growth. We're growing different communities of organisms. It may only be that they're larger, but they're likely going to be different as well. That increase in surface biomass or that change surface biomass can propagate down through the, through the water column and up the food chain, and we may have different communities of uh, grazers or fish communities or benthic organisms living. Now, at some level, it becomes a value judgment about whether or not this is an important thing. But before we can start having those discussions about whether or not this is important, we need to actually have some hard evidence about what the likely consequences for marine food webs and marine ecology are going to be. Richard Sanders and Richard Lampett at the National Oceanography Centre. So what do people think about these ideas? Well, the Natural Environment Research Council recently carried out a public dialogue investigating attitudes to geoengineering. The findings suggested that participants felt it might one day be necessary, but they found some technologies more acceptable than others. Richard Lampert was an advisor for the study. The thinking is that we really need to bring people, the public, the general public, along with us. We need to have their support and we need to have them uh, believe that what the scientific community are trying to do is not some devilish plan to provide resources for our own research, but actually to help the planet to help to make sensible decisions in the future. So to bring people along with us is really helpful so that they understand and can support what we're doing. When you look, though, at the summary of the results, the level of support for ocean-based methods such as iron fertilisation was low. There were also a, a majority opposed to the idea of injecting sulphate particles high up in the stratosphere, the two projects we've been, we've been talking about. And the most ambitious. Does that surprise you? No, it doesn't really surprise me. I think people are nervous, and rightly so, but people are nervous about some of these schemes that have been proposed. And I think what we've got to do is to get the evidence together to do the research so that we can make sensible decisions in the future and to to engage, to talk with, with people, to ensure that they understand what we're doing, and so that we can also take, take advantage of their insights. I mean, some of these issues, the ethical ones, for instance, are not ones which the scientific community is well geared up to engage in, but there are significant ethical issues here. So we need to engage in both directions. Richard Lampert. Well, Matt Watson from the University of Bristol is still with me. Hugh referred to all this, this geoengineering earlier, as climate engineering, which, in a way, it sounds scarier. Um, yes, well, I think one of the reasons one, one might want to avoid geoengineering is that there is already a word, geoengineering, which means something quite different to geoengineers of that flavour. Um, climate engineering, I think, is a perfectly acceptable badge because this stuff is scary. It should be scary if we're in the position... We're so far down the road in terms of climate change that we're having to think about these things. People should be concerned about it. That, you know, uh, Personally, I'm not an advocate of deployment of geoengineering, but I feel passionately we have to think about these things before we get to the point where we might have to deploy them without really researching them properly. I think the, f- the future is uncertain enough to justify undertaking the research, but that shouldn't be a mandate for deployment. Many people, and I think this came out in the study, and certainly many environmentalists, don't even like the idea of investigating these proposals. Yes, and, and you know, maybe they have a point. You know, I think a very sagely uh, colleague of mine told me last week that essentially how you feel about geoengineering is broadly tied to 
how you feel about the success of carbon dioxide reduction. Um, make no mistake about it, the right thing to do is to reduce carbon dioxide emissions. That, that's absolutely what we should be doing, and no geoengineering project should be allowed to undermine that effort. But if you believe, as most climate scientists, I would argue, do, that we are approaching or even past the point of no return, these things have to remain on the table until they're shown to be too dangerous or too risky to pursue further. Isn't there a danger here that by you developing the technology, someone else will, will simply do it? Yes, I think that's a, um, a perfectly uh, valid question, actually. So we were challenged by the research councils who are, who are paying for this research to actually go away and think about that problem. They asked us that very question, but they also asked us what other applications could this technology be used for, both positive and negative. And so we've gone away and we've thought about that. There's not a clear answer, actually, to be completely honest. Um, I think if somebody's going to deploy without a mandate, particularly in terms of sulphate aerosol or any other aerosol that might reflect light, I think they do it whether or not we've done the research or not. And actually, because we're trying to be objective, you could argue that we don't know whether or not this technology is going to work or not, and therefore, if we find out it doesn't work, that's less likely to make people who are reckless deploy. So I think the other option is just to stick your head in the sand and, and hope that nothing bad happens, and that's less palatable. Matt Watson, thank you very much. You can share your opinions on our Facebook page and for more information and features on geoengineering, or if you prefer, climate engineering, as well as technologies such as carbon capture and storage, do visit Planet Earth online. I'm Richard Hollingham. Thanks for listening.